Well, it's good to be here and uh, to be with you today. So I was able to listen to what Andrew said last week and to know what you got to hear about. And, and many of you are familiar with the Jonah story or the Noah story. <laughs> Don't worry, I'll probably mix those up a couple times. Just keep count. And uh, so, you know, if you grew up in Sunday school, you've heard this story. And probably even if you didn't grow up in Sunday school, you heard this story. I want to give to you the after story. This is a part that usually we skip over because we, we generally you know, hear about Noah and his family. They get off the ark. We see the scene, maybe in the, in, the, in the picture books, we see the scene of the altar. You've got the rainbow going on in the background, and that's it, right? That's the end of the story. Let's jump to the Tower of Babel or Abraham or what's the next Sunday school story. But there is more to know about Noah and his family and what God said. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Now, my family, uh, two summers ago, we were down in the States visiting my parents. And my dad took us down to Kentucky to visit Noah's Ark. Has anybody seen Noah's Ark in Kentucky? Oh my goodness, you've got to go see this thing. It is enormous. So they built Ken Ham, Answers in Genesis, they built Noah's Ark to scale. They used the dimensions in the Bible. Um, there's a couple different ideas of what a cubit is, and so they took kind of the middle ground of what that was, and they built this ark. It's 510 feet long. It is the largest wooden structure on earth. It is immense. It's one and a half football, NFL football fields, long. It's big enough that they can actually put three NASA space shuttles on top. And so they've gone painstakingly into the details of Noah and his story. And, I want, and, and the reason to do this, it's not just to make some great big um, attraction for people to come and, and spend, their, spend their money at. It's so that you and I can have confidence of what the Bible says. And there's so much to learn about Noah and the story and, and what they were able to fit inside the ark. And we can have confidence because of what they did. We can have confidence knowing that the Bible is true. And the story of Noah's ark and what he did is plausible. And we can have confidence in God. So we're going to pick up. Um, the story last week ended with... with Noah and his family, they're off the ark. They built this altar. They offered sacrifices on the altar. And this immediately starts right after that. And as you read this morning or this afternoon in, in Genesis chapter 9, God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. And fill the earth. Now, if this sounds familiar to you, it's the same thing that God told Abram, God told Adam and Eve to do right at the very beginning: is be fruitful and multiply. But then God adds a little bit more, a few more ideas, a few more instructions to to Noah and his family because they are now living on a drastically changed earth. It is probably the greatest climate change that's ever happened to this planet happened at the flood. And so when they, when they went on the ark and the door was shut before the water started to come, they were in a place that was probably very tropical. 
because of if, if you read in, this, in Genesis, it talks about the firmament or the canopy that was over the earth. And there's a lot to that. That would have made this earth very tropical. It would have made it unified in its climate. It would have also prevented UV, harmful UV rays to be able to, to damage plants and animals. Things would have grown to a much greater size than what we know today. And so when Noah and his family, they get off the ark, they are getting off onto a planet that is drastically changed. Now people today go through a lot of effort trying to find Noah's ark. Some people are trying to find Noah's Ark to prove, is the Bible true? Is that really something that happened or is it just a, a Sunday school story? Some people are skeptics and they're looking at it going, I hope they never find it because we don't believe you know, God's real and all this type of stuff. And so you know, people have been looking and looking and looking trying to find Noah's Ark. And sometimes people find it, they think they find something and they're like, here it is. And then it's like, ah, oh, it didn't turn out the, the way they thought. And then my friend... Um, my friend in Tesla, and he's very, very logical, very practical, says, if you were Noah and his family and you got off the ark and there's no mature trees left, you know, the earth is wiped clean and you need a place to live and you need fences to keep your cattle in and you turn around and there's this largest wooden structure in the world behind you, would you leave that the way it is? Or would you use that to build your first houses, buildings, farms, all that? And I'm like, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And so we may never find Noah's Ark, but that doesn't mean it's not true. And so Noah and his family, they get off the, get off the Ark. They're on this earth that is completely changed. And God gives them some special instructions. Be fruitful and multiply, as we see. But then keep on going with me. Verse 2 says, The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. They're going to dread you. This is something different. You and I, we're accustomed. When we go into the bush, when we go into nature, we're used to things running away from us, right? I've been trying to find a moose this fall. It is not working out for me because the fear and the dread of me is on them and they run away. But that wasn't the way it was before the flood. And we're not really sure how that looks, but if you look at the end of the story, the very end of the story, the prophecies of what life is going to be like on this planet when the Messiah comes back, the second coming, all of a sudden... Animals that are normally at odds with each other are going to be at peace with each other. The lion and the lamb, the wolf and the calf. The child will even be able to play next to a den of snakes and not worry about being bit because everything will be at peace. But that's not the world that we know. And now Noah is coming off of the ark and that's not the world that he's seeing anymore. All of a sudden the animals are running away. The dread of humans is on the animals. God tells Noah something more. Every creature, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. This is something new. Now, you and I, we're used to that. Like, you know, 
bacon is like a whole food group to me. Like, I mean, I love, I'm a meat eater. But for the first millennium of human existence on this planet, they were vegetarians. Right? Even the animals that we consider carnivorous now ate plants. And someone says, well, how, how is that? I mean, like the teeth, the fossils were finding like big teeth and that kind of stuff. Has anybody seen a panda bear? Anybody petted a panda bear or anything like that? Seen the teeth they have? What do pandas eat? Bamboo, Bamboo right? They're vegetarian. They, they will eat meat if you gave them meat. But their primary, 90% of their diet is bamboo. And yet they've got big fangs. So, yeah, maybe the animals back then, they had big fangs. They could eat plants. The Bible tells us everything ate plants. They were vegetarians. But now, God is telling Noah, you are going to eat meat. Anything that lives is food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But then here is something special. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. You're not supposed to eat any, any, any animal that hasn't been bled out. Now this might be a little gross, a little squeamish for some of you that don't hunt or don't butcher your own stuff. Like where I come from, that's what we do. You know, we're hunters. We get our own food. Have to deal with it. But... Like, I grew up in a Judeo-Christian society. Most of us have grown up in a Judeo-Christian society where we don't eat food that has blood in it. There are some cultures in the world where blood is very normal. If you go to, to Africa, there are certain places where they will actually drink blood from a live animal. That is hard to think about for me. Very hard to think about. And that is something that God is saying, no, you can't do that. Noah, that is not something you'll do. You don't drink or eat flesh, meat, that has its life. That is, its blood. Over 400 times in the Bible, blood is mentioned. It's a significant thing. Life is important, and the life of a creature is in its blood. And as you study the Bible and as you, you see some of the, the symbolism and you understand God's reasoning, you'll see that blood is precious. Life is precious. Further on, in, as you go into the story and you read in Leviticus, and Leviticus is a whole bunch of laws, a whole bunch of laws that God gives His special people, the Jews. One of the things He says is, do not eat anything with blood in it because blood is the life of a creature, and it is for your atonement. It is for paying for your life and for your sins. It's very, very special. And so God tells Noah, Noah, don't eat anything that has blood still in it. But then God goes on even further with Noah, and He says, and for your lifeblood, and when He's talking about your, He's talking about humanity. Humans, people, mankind, not just Noah himself, not just his sons, but everybody that comes after him. For your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it, and from any man. For from, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. 
Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. So God is telling them, man's life is special. Human life is special. It's valuable. And so if someone takes somebody else's life, that person's life is payment. It's a special concept. Did you study Cain and Abel? Was that one of the stories that you talked about already? Okay, so what happened to Cain after he murdered his brother Abel? Does anybody remember? Cain was cursed and he was sent away. But he was not imprisoned. He did not give his life. That was how things were back before the flood. This is a brand new concept that God is is letting them know murderers must be punished by, by their own life, with their own life. That is something that's brand new. It's something that's special, and it's something that is going to change how things go from then on. Now, the interesting thing here is it doesn't teach. Nothing in this passage tells us exactly how that is going to be governed. Nothing in this passage tells us that, you know, if, if uh, I took Matt's life here, that all of a sudden Becky's going to come after me and take my life, right? It's not vigilante-type justice. And so later on, God gives laws on how that is going to be worked out. If you go into the New Testament, you read about Romans in Romans chapter 13. And I'm actually going to read it to you because I, f- I find it's a very important passage six days after the federal election. Um, it's an important passage to read. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Ouch. For there is no authority except from God. No governing authorities except what God allows. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resist what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. So it doesn't matter what, how you like the results of Monday's election. We have to respect the authorities. We can't resist them. We can't work against them. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have... Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. And so the government, our authorities have been, insti- have been placed to upkeep the law, to fulfill the law. And so, so capital punishment that we learn about in Genesis chapter 9 is the government's job now to make sure that it's, it's kept in an orderly fashion. But God places, places special purpose and value on human life. That is the foundational truth that I want us to focus on today is God places special purpose and value on human life. 
Our modern society today has really devalued human life, hasn't it? Media, video games. I say that very tongue-in-cheek because I play a lot of video games with my teenage son, and we enjoy that. But the reality is, is it desensitizes us to life, right? When you play something like Call of Duty, it really desensitizes you. Um, I was talking to a, a Swiss friend, and he was saying that even our modern type of warfare has really desensitized us to the preciousness of life. Now, if you think about what it was like in biblical times to go fight in the military, the life that you would have to take, you would have to be right in their face, right? If you were an archer, that would be a little bit, they'd be a little bit further away. But generally, when you're fighting with a sword or with an axe, they are right in front of you. You're eye to eye seeing that life that you're taking. It was horrific. Nowadays, you don't even have to be in the same part of the world to take life. People fly drones, people shoot missiles, things like that. It really has separated us from the preciousness of the life that we take. As we find out in the, the sacrificial system that is eventually going to be set up, the sins of people were paid for by, by an animal being killed. And the head of the household would have to come, and for a certain, a certain type of sacrifice, the head of the household would have to come, and they'd actually have to put their hand on the animal as its life is taken to show how horrific and how terrible sin is in God's eyes, how brutal the death is of a creature to pay for your sins. Life is valuable, and God has put special purpose and value on human life. And God cares about human life so much that He made a way for people to spend eternity with Him. He used something that was so precious to God to pay for something else of great value to Him. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter one, and we're going to look at verse verse eighteen to twenty one. It says, "Knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with what? What does it say? Has anybody got it there? What were we bought with?" The precious blood of Christ. God looks at you as someone that is so precious, so valuable to Him. You are so valuable to God that in order for Him to spend eternity with you, He had to send somebody even more precious, His Son, Jesus, to die on the cross to be your sacrifice to be your substitution, to be my substitution. That is something that is, is something we really need to grasp fully, to really understand how precious God must think we are to be able to send His own Son. I have a son. I have one son. I would not send him for any one of you. I'm sorry. I wouldn't. 
How many fathers here, how many mothers here would send your son to pay for anybody else in this room? And you guys are good people, right? And yet Jesus did that for you and for me. He sent his precious son to pay for you. God places special purpose and value on human life. Why? Why are we so precious? Why are we so important to God? Well, back in Genesis chapter 9, the end of verse 6 says, For God made man in his own image. God made man in his own image. Now, if you, if you go back to Genesis chapter 1, I believe it's somewhere in the 20s, verse 20-something of, of chapter 1, it says that God made man in his image, both male and female. So it's not just man is made in God's image, it's humans are made in God's image. Both male and female bear the image of God. And so we are precious and valuable to God. We're different than all of the rest of creation. There are a lot of people who place nature, they place animals, trees, all different things of nature as equal with humans. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. It teaches us that human life is more important than the rest of creation. In fact, he says humans are the ones who are supposed to be in dominion. They are supposed to be stewards over the rest of creation. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people have perverted and corrupted this and thought we can do whatever we want to creation. We can do whatever we want to nature. It's fully at our disposal. And I don't think that was what God really intended when He made us managers over creation. He wanted us to conserve and manage, not destroy. But we are special in God's eyes because we are the pinnacle of His creation. We are made in His image. There's a story in the New Testament of Jesus with the, when He was with His disciples there was a number of people that were always trying to catch Jesus up. They were always trying to test him. They were trying to say things to get him to say something wrong so that they could like jump on him and, and really um, you know, get him in trouble. And so one of, the, one of the Pharisees came up to him and, and said, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully and you don't care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Because they knew how he answered this could get him in trouble either with the Jews or with Caesar, the Romans. But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin. For the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Now, if I asked you to bring up a quarter, what does it show on a quarter? Deer. <laughs> what? What did you say? Deer. Deer? Yeah. Okay, what's on the other side of the quarter? <laughs> Queen. Queen Elizabeth II, right? 
But the denarius that they had at the time had Caesar's face imprinted on it, right? And so Jesus said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled, and they left him, and they went away. Every one of us bears the image of God. We were all created in God's image. And so if you're to give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and you're supposed to give to God what is God, what does that mean? For us what are we supposed to give him ourselves that's right he wants us to give him ourselves romans chapter 12 says to offer yourself a living sacrifice thank goodness it doesn't say a dead sacrifice it says a living sacrifice offer ourselves up to him to be used by him But then one last point. Our purpose is to glorify God. Do we have a lot, many people here that climb mountains? Hike? Hike mountains? Yeah, okay. So I rarely ever do it unless I'm hunting. But I like to do it. I, as long as there's some reason to go to the top of the mountain. Our purpose is to glorify God. The great purpose of life, of all things, is to glorify God. And so one thing that has really um, been mind-changing for me is when I go to the top of a mountain. And uh, this, this last, last year I was up on a mountain, and uh, we are going after some critters, some big critters. And uh, I'm going across this top of this mountain, and it looked completely desolate, really flat, um, nothing to it. But as we're going along and we got some pretty heavy packs, I'm looking down at my feet and there's these little tiny flowers. There's like moss, different kinds of mosses that grow on those rocks. And there's these really tiny, delicate flowers. And then there's some berries and different things like that. And the more you look, the more there's all kinds of life, plant life on top of these mountains. And I got to think about there are plants in the Yukon, there are flowers that are going to spend their entire life cycle without ever seeing a human being, right? If you went to the very back corner of Kluwani National Park, there are flowers there that a human is never going to see. Why are they there? Bring God's glory. He put them there. And they spend their entire life cycle glorifying God, just being what God put them there to be, He gets glory for doing that. Now, why do I bring that up? Well, when we look back at the story of Noah and his family, and we hear where God says, be fruitful and multiply, I think for us nowadays, when the earth has got 7.7 billion people on it, we go... What's my job? There's, there's been so much multiplication that has happened, physical multiplication on this earth, that I don't know that what's my job. And some of you might be single. Some of you may not have the ability to have kids. Some of you may don't even want kids. That's possible. It is. Believe me. Um, <laughs> is that you go, what, what is my purpose in this? 
And let me tell you, every single one of you in this room have a purpose in God's eyes. And every single one of you are part of this story, this ongoing story of God and his people and his redeeming and bringing people back to himself. You and I have a purpose in this. And our purpose is to be fruitful and multiply, even if we're not talking about childbirth. I got two more verses I want to read to you. One comes from John chapter 15. John chapter 15, verse 8 says this, By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. My Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. God wants our lives to be fruitful. There's, he wants our character to reflect Him. That's part of being fruitful. But also there is a, there's an actual reproduction aspect of being fruitful. We're used to seeing a plant produce fruit. And remember when Jesus, when he, Him and His disciples are going along and they went to that fig tree and, and Jesus was hungry and there was like no figs on that tree and He cursed it? Because a fig tree should produce figs. An apple tree should produce apples. Corn should produce corn cobs filled with corn kernels. Like that's normal. We get that, right? God wants us to produce fruit. And so prove to be His disciples. Be fruitful and multiply. And then another passage that you know so well because... We talked about it this summer. A number of us talked about it this summer. Is Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28 says, there, Go therefore and make disciples. Right? And then it goes on to say, and I promised two verses, so this is going to be three verses. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Our part in the story is to be fruitful and multiply. There's over 4 billion people left on this earth that have never heard the name of Jesus. They don't know Him. They don't have access to Him. They don't have a Bible in their language. They don't have a church nearby that they can go to to assemble. They need to hear. And if we aren't being fruitful and multiplying, how are they going to hear? How are they going to hear? And I think it's powerful, the words. Be fruitful and multiply. He didn't say be fruitful and add to the number. He said to multiply. So we need to be creative and figure out how do we multiply our efforts? How do we do things smart so that our efforts get multiplied and disciples are made? This is what happens when you have a missionary come up to speak. (laughs) God places special purpose and value on human life. Now, there's a whole lot more to the story that I left out. I encourage you to read the rest of Genesis 9 and 10. 
Because there's some crazy stuff in there. There's stories that involve alcohol, alcohol and nudity and bad decision making. And that affects a whole nation. And if you read the rest of Genesis, it's filled with all kinds of crazy, scandalous stuff. So I encourage you, read it. See what God has to say. See the grand story of God redeeming His people and drawing people to Him. You are a part of this story. The continuing story of what God is doing. Be fruitful and multiply. Let's pray. Dear God, You are an amazing God. And I really believe You have a sense of humor. And God, I thank You for, for the work that You did on the cross. And Lord, I thank You for the value that You put on our lives. And Lord, I thank You for the purpose that You've given every one of us. So that every morning when we wake up, we can live purpose-driven lives for Your glory, for Your kingdom. In your name, Jesus, I pray this. Amen.